Good morning, church family. It is good to be with you today. And let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Proverbs. Book of Proverbs. Or if you would prefer, you could simply take out this insert from your bulletin. Uh, You will find my sermon outline on the front of the insert. And then on the back side, you'll find all the passages from Proverbs that I'm going to cite. And I've tried to make it easy to follow. You'll find the passages in the order in which I will present them this morning. We're going to talk about poverty today. I'd like to begin by offering a word of prayer, and then we'll get started together. So let's pray. Lord, I do thank you so much for allowing us to gather together as a church family this morning. Lord, these are precious people, every one of them, and it's so good to see them. Lord, would you bless them? Would you keep them in your will? Would you help them to grow in spiritual maturity? Lord, grow us closer together as a single church family. And Lord, help us as we together now Consider this important topic from your word. I pray that you would use your word to open our minds, to open our hearts, and to give us an eagerness to follow your will. And I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the United States is the richest nation in the history of the world, and we are living in the richest era of our nation's history right now. Most Americans today enjoy a standard of living that would be unimaginable to most of the residents of the world. For example, just take a look around our city this afternoon. It is garage sale weekend in the city of Marshall, and on virtually every street in our city, you're going to find homes with sales. They're going to have tables lined up all over their front yards that have mountains and mountains of clothes There will be toys and housewares and shoes and more items than than most around the world could conceive of. And you understand that these are just the items that homeowners want to get rid of inside their homes. There are mountains more items that are even better and newer than these. The wealth of the average American is almost indescribable. But this does not mean that poverty is non-existent in America either. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, about 12% of the American population is impoverished, which they define as living at $35 per day or less. Around the world, the situation is far more bleak. According to the World Bank, nearly a billion people are living in extreme poverty, which they define as living on less than $1.90 per day. And people have all kinds of opinions about poverty and its causes, but this morning we're going to look at the scriptures together, and particularly the book of Proverbs, and we're going to look at what God has to say about poverty. In fact, we're going to begin by seeing how poverty is defined in the scriptures, then we'll see what the Bible says about the causes of poverty. And then finally, we'll talk about what should be done for those trapped in poverty. And I hope that that this will be profitable for all of us as we seek to have our minds shaped by the Word of God on this subject. 
So let's begin with that first question. What is poverty according to the Bible? Well, in the Bible, an impoverished person isn't someone who's just broke. Okay? An impoverished person is someone who is completely destitute of the food, clothing, and shelter that they need for long-term survival. We find this in places like Exodus chapter 23, Leviticus chapter 25, Deuteronomy chapter 24, and then in passages throughout the New Testament as well. The scriptures are also clear that to be trapped in poverty is absolutely devastating. It comes with physical problems, including unchecked hunger and disease and even premature death. It comes with psychological problems. It is humiliating. It feels degrading. It also comes with social marginalization. Proverbs 19, verse 4 talks about this when it says, quote, A rich man has many friends, but a poor man's friend deserts him. So in other words, poverty is isolating. And none of this was God's original intent for humanity, you understand. In fact, think with me to Genesis chapter 1, to the creation week. The Bible tells us that humanity's first home was the Garden of Eden. And this was created by God himself. And it tells us that Eden was a a lush paradise. It was brimming with all of the resources necessary for humans to thrive. And the first assignment that God gave to our first parents in the garden was to cultivate the resources of that paradise so they would produce even, so that garden would produce even more produce, even more resources to allow them to thrive. Then listen to this description of the land around Eden from Genesis chapter 2. It says, quote, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. And Bedillam and Onyx Stone are there. And the name of the second river is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So just dwell on all of the resources mentioned in that passage Eden was overflowing with clean water and with lush vegetation. There were fruits and vegetables. And in the lands immediately surrounding the garden, we find gold and precious stones. See, when God first created the world, he made it a place of abundance. And he placed Adam and Eve right into the midst of it to enjoy that abundance for for their own good and also to his glory. So what happened? Why is so much of the world ground down by poverty today? Well, according to the Bible, the ultimate cause of poverty can be traced back to humanity's fall into sin and to the curse that God subsequently brought upon the earth because of that sin. You recall that when God created our first parents, he created them in holiness But by a voluntary transgression of God's law, they plunge themselves and all their posterity into sin. 
And God responded to their sin by uttering a curse upon the world. And that fall into sin and God's curse from uh, that sin introduced two novelties into the world. First, evil. Second, scarcity. This is where poverty comes from. Combination of the evil and the scarcity that now plagues our world. And so this is the ultimate source of poverty in the world. We are fallen creatures now. That means we don't follow God's will. We don't treat one another as we ought. And we don't treat creation as we ought. And this world is cursed. It seems as if the ground works against us when we try to cultivate produce from it. This world is plagued by natural disasters. And much of the earth's surface today is not fit for habitation. But now as we move from the general to the specific, let's consider what causes individuals to become impoverished in the world today. Okay, what, what direct lines can be traced between, person, between um, circumstances and poverty? Well, this is actually a very complicated issue, and so the Bible gives us a very complicated answer. The Bible tells us that in some cases, individual poverty is the result of sinful personal choices. Okay, sinful personal choices. The book of Proverbs does not shy away from drawing this line between behavior and its consequences. And there are three sins in particular mentioned in Proverbs, which it says are all but guaranteed to impoverish a person. The first is the sin of drunkenness and gluttony. Proverbs 23, 21 says, The drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty. You see, if you are overindulging in food and drink, two things are going to happen. First of all, money that should be directed toward the basic necessities of life are being redirected to things you don't need. Excess drink, excess food. And so that's going to put you in a difficult spot. But then the second thing that happens to you is that with an overindulgence in food and alcohol, you wreck your body. And then you become physically incapable of the work that is necessary to earn an income and meet your own needs. And so drunkenness and gluttony can render you impoverished. Second sin is laziness. Listen to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. It says, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber. And want like an armed man. This is almost a a humorous proverb. The image here is of a a young, able-bodied man, fast asleep, but now morning has come. And the sun is coming up over the horizon, and the sunlight is now shining through his window. And the young man wakes up. But instead of rolling out of bed to begin a productive day, he instead just takes his pillow, plops it over the top of his head, and tries to go back to sleep. And this passage says a person who is chronically lazy is all but guaranteed to wind up in poverty. Then there's a third sin mentioned in Proverbs. That is wasting your time on worthless pursuits. 
or other Bible translations say uh, chasing fantasies. We find this, for example, in Proverbs 28, verse 19. That verse says, whoever works hard, or excuse me, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread. But he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. So this, this pursuit of worthless things could, could refer to any number of activities. It, it could refer to a person always chasing after those get-rich-quick schemes, right? So instead of just putting your nose to the grindstone and, and doing the hard work to earn an income, you're just always looking for an easy way to do it. You're, you're playing the lotto or taking uh, some money to the casino, trying to get yourself rich the easy way. This could also refer to uh, starting up a, a venture, but then not seeing it through. Many people today get lured in by the, the promises of pyramid schemes, and so they make that initial investment. They, they buy all the products they're going to need to sell. They try to situate themselves into the pyramid, and then it just doesn't pan out. They either don't, don't keep up with it, or they discover that the promises were empty, and so they end up with less money than they had at the beginning. Or this could just refer to using up all of your available time on video games or sports or hobbies or things like this, activities that you really enjoy, but they're not going to generate the income necessary to support yourself. And so we can impoverish ourselves by using the time God has given us on activities that will not meet our needs. And so we see here from Proverbs that there are many cases, especially here in the West, by the way, where the opportunities just abound. There are many opportunities where poverty can actually be the consequence of one's own sinful choices. You are able-bodied, you have the opportunity for gainful employment, but you choose not to follow that, and instead you decide to Remain in bed and catch up on more sleep. You choose to follow after games and sports, and you, you decide to do things that will not, will not meet your needs. That's one way that people can become impoverished. But then, of course, poverty can also come in other ways. Proverbs tells us poverty can also be the result of forces completely outside of a person's control. I think Proverbs 28, verse 6 is key here. That verse says, um, or that verse speaks of a poor man who has integrity. Integrity. And other Bible translations render it as uprightness or blamelessness. So the Bible does recognize a category of people who are absolutely impoverished, but morally they are righteous. In other words, they've, they've committed no sin that would have led them to their impoverished state. They're impoverished because of things totally outside of their own control. Now, what kinds of things could impoverish a righteous person? Well, things like these. War. Proverbs 13.23 speaks of this. It says, The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food but it is swept away through injustice. So here is a, a, an able-bodied person. He is working hard. I mean, he has secured a piece of land. He, he's working to cultivate that land. And in a just world, all of his and his family's needs would be met. But it's not a just world. 
And it says, through injustice, this man's livelihood has been taken away from him. So perhaps there was an invading army that that came into his country and took possession of his field and burned it to the ground. Or maybe his nation has plunged into a civil war and, and through the civil war, his crop was utterly destroyed. Or perhaps there were... Um, uh, exploitive circumstances where, where he worked hard, but then someone more powerful than him took it out from under him, and now he's been left destitute. See, there are ways in which a, a righteous man or woman can become impoverished. Think of the nation of Syria right now. This nation has been in civil war for more than 10 years Before the Civil War began, poverty was actually quite uncommon in Syria. But today, according to uh, statistics, 70% of the population is living below the global poverty line. You see, 10 years of civil war has completely destroyed the infrastructure. It's destroyed all the businesses. It's sent refugees by the millions Um, All over the Middle East, they have no way of meeting their own needs because of war. That can happen to righteous people. Another way a righteous person can become impoverished is by exploitive economic conditions. Proverbs 28, verse 8 speaks of this. It speaks of predatory business practices like price gouging and charging exorbitant interest for loans. Practices that make it impossible for impoverished people to ever get ahead in life. I think a, a good example of this would be our own country during the Industrial Revolution. People were working in factories for 14 to 16 hours a day, six days a week. They had no safety gear. They received no breaks. They only made about 10 cents per hour. And that was far below the poverty line in the late 19th century. Children were also put to work in these factories, and they were paid far less than 10 cents an hour because the employers could get away with it. And it's not as if any of these people could just leave the factory and go to another job. There were no other jobs. That's why they came to the cities. That's why they went to the factories. But these were the conditions that they encountered. Many of the kids who worked in these factories grew up with physical deformities because of the lack of exercise and sunlight and safe working conditions. Many other people died in these factories. You know, these were the conditions that led to the formation of the first labor unions whose influence created the modern 40-day work week and child labor laws and safer working conditions and collective bargaining. You know, many of these awful practices still happen around the world today. Many of the products that we buy dirt cheap online come from factories overseas where people are working in Incredibly horrific circumstances. Looking beyond the book of Proverbs to the rest of the Bible, we find other ways that righteous people can be trapped in poverty. The scriptures also speak of famines, of natural disasters, of medical conditions like blindness or paralysis that can inflict people and leave them utterly destitute. But the point here is that the Bible presents us with all kinds of reasons why individuals in our world today can find themselves being crushed under the weight of poverty. Sometimes it could be traceable to personal sins. There's a direct line there between the way they have chosen to live their life 
and their economic circumstances. In other cases, we have righteous people who, through, through forces far outside of their control, have been victimized by life, and now they are impoverished. Or oftentimes, it can be a combination of the two. Part of the problem is the choices they have made, and the other part is the circumstances under which they are living. Friends, it's really important that we understand the complexity of this issue because this knowledge is going to help us resist the temptation to make quick moral judgments about people based on their wealth. This is all too common in political rhetoric today, isn't it? On the political right, it's very common to hear people blaming poverty on the poor. Their problem is they're not ambitious enough. They're too lazy. They just haven't taken advantage of the opportunities they have in life. And it's their fault, and we got to help them just figure out how to get out of that. That's too often the rhetoric on the right. But then the rhetoric on the left is just as problematic, but it's directed toward the rich, saying all the rich, the millionaires and billionaires, they must be corrupt or they couldn't be rich. And they must be exploiting people. They must be morally inferior. And so we we get ourselves caught up in this very harmful political rhetoric, um, throwing aspersions on the character of the rich and the poor, based on no other criteria than they are rich or they are poor. Now, the knowledge that the Scripture gives us should help us to see that these kinds of quick moral judgments are unacceptable. There are rich people who are righteous. Think of Job in the Bible, a paragon of virtue, also one of the richest men of his generation. But there are also corrupt rich people. There are also righteous poor people, and there are corrupt poor people. You see, we find good and bad people in every economic category. We need to be aware of this. Also, it's important to know that that poverty is a complex issue because it will inform the way that we view ourselves. Here in America, we tend to view our own worth based on our wealth. If we are rich and and have a really prestigious job title and all of that, we feel really good about ourselves. But if we've lost our job or or we're, we're below the poverty line, we feel like we're worthless people. Well, the Bible doesn't allow us to think that way about ourselves either. You know, if you're well off financially, don't think for one minute it's because you are a morally superior person. It's by the grace of God that you have your wealth. And if you're in poverty, don't think for one minute that you're a morally inferior person just for that reason. Just God in His providence may have brought these circumstances into your life for your ultimate good, but for now it's very painful. But it doesn't mean necessarily that you have been lazy or or that you have made bad choices. Proverbs 22, verse 2 is a key passage here. It tells us that the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. See, the Lord is the maker of them all. Rich and poor alike share a common humanity. Rich and poor alike are are image bearers of God. And that, by the way, is where we get our worth from. 
It's not by what we do, it's not by what we have, but it's by who we are as people made in the image of God, fallen into sin and yet still carrying great dignity. People who need to be reconciled to God through repentance and faith. That's who we are. The scriptures tell us that we must learn to treat one another, not on the basis of what we have, but on the basis of who we are. So now we've considered what the Bible says about poverty and its causes. Let's turn to that third question. What should be done for people trapped in poverty? Whatever the cause of the poverty is. Well, here, friends, the book of Proverbs is very clear. In fact, the entire Bible is clear about what should be done for the poor. The Bible tells us that those who have wealth and power should seek the uplift of those who do not. I'll say that again. Those who have wealth and power should seek the uplift of those who do not. Now, for those trapped in poverty due to sinful life choices... Seeking their influence will have to begin with a call to repentance. Call to repentance. And not in a smug, self-righteous way, you understand, where, where, where we would look down at a person whose life choices have sent them into poverty, but, but rather more like a, a, a sister who would plead with her brother to, to turn his life around. It, it's the, the loving pleas of one person to another who wants to seek their uplift, but it cannot happen without repentance. If there is a a loved one trapped in the cycle of poverty because of drunkenness or gluttony or laziness or wasting their time on worthless pursuits, we we must go to them and say, listen, this is not how God wants you to live. It's not his will for you. We have to say to them, you know, you might not even realize this now, but, but the choices you're making, they're showing contempt for God. Listen, God, God has, has told you his will, and he wants you to be a worker, and he, he doesn't want you to abuse your body. Don't you see that you're throwing contempt on him in living this way? And, and don't you see you're showing contempt for your neighbors, too? You're making your neighbors work extra hard so that you can be supplied with with what you need. In other words, they have to meet their own family's needs and your needs too. We can't allow this to happen. Now, the person might say, I'm not asking anything of my neighbors. I'm just getting my monthly check in the mail from the government. Nobody's harmed by this. But yes, we answer, where did that money come from? came from hard-working people who are meeting their family's needs and then paying taxes to supply the needs of those who really need it. You know, most people are, are pretty decent. They're, they're happy to pay taxes to the government if the government is going to use it to supply the genuine needs of the truly poor. But to support those who are able-bodied and have opportunities for work, that is not acceptable. So their uplift begins with a call for repentance. 
You know, the New Testament takes this issue so seriously that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, it says an able-bodied person who refuses to work is to be removed from the membership of the church. It's that big of, an, of a problem. And 1 Timothy 5, 8 says that a person who professes faith in Christ but refuses to take care of the needs of his own family when he's able to do so, it says that person is worse than an unbeliever. How could that be? Well, because not only are they rejecting God's will that they work and meet their family's needs, but they're also claiming to be followers of Christ. So they've added hypocrisy on top of the original sin. They're giving the world the impression that Christ's followers are, are to live for themselves, that they are a self-indulgent people, that they're not a people who work hard and give We must call for the repentance of those who are trapped in poverty because of their own sinful choices. But then, friends, after calling for their repentance, we don't leave them behind. We then work with them to secure a new path. We help them get that job, or if they need it, we secure job training for them. We can connect in the community resources that can help them overcome their addictions to food and alcohol. And when they show signs of, of victories, they're, they're conquering their addictions and they're, they're holding down a job, we celebrate those victories with them. And when they fall back into old habits, we are there to, to encourage them and even compel them to get back on the right path. That is our job. That is what will secure their uplift. But then what about those trapped in poverty due to circumstances beyond their control? What about them? Well, here Proverbs gives us a threefold strategy. Our first task is to open our ears and hear their need. Open our ears and hear their need. Listen to Proverbs 21, verse 13. It says, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. So the idea here is that when a, an impoverished person is crying out to us for help, our job is to lean in and listen to the cry. And we listen with the desire to help thinking, what can I do in this situation? We want to listen to them so we can learn. Okay, you you are trapped in poverty. How did this happen? What were the circumstances that, that led to this point? What are the specific needs that have to be met to facilitate your uplift? That's why we're listening to them. And after we've opened our ears, we need to open our hearts to them. That means sharing with them our time and our talents to facilitate their uplift, maybe connecting them to our network of support so that they can be lifted up. It also means sharing our financial resources for their uplift. Listen to all the passages that speak to this in Proverbs. Proverbs 14.21, Blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Proverbs 19.17, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. Proverbs 22, 9, blessed is the person who shares his bread with the poor. 
So these are our responsibilities. We open our ears to the cry of the poor. We learn what is their situation, what are their needs, and then we open our hearts to them and we share every resource we possess to facilitate their uplift. If they need our time, we give them our time. If they need practical help, we give them our practical help. If they need money from our wallets, we give them money from our wallets if that's what it will take to lift them up. You know, this theme carries right on through to the New Testament scriptures. It mirrors the ministry of Jesus himself. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. It says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Just this beautiful description of the gospel that Christ was rich, meaning in His pre-incarnate glory, He had all things. But by choice, He gave it all up. He came to live in a sin-cursed world. He took on a full human nature, experienced all of our infirmities. Philippians chapter 2 says He emptied Himself and became a servant. That's what Christ did. He was rich. But for our sakes, he chose to become poor. And then it says he did it so that through his poverty, we might have uplift, that we might become rich. He submitted to a death on the cross so that our sins could be wiped away, so that through faith and repentance, we could be reconciled to God and have an inheritance with Christ. That's what Christ did for us. And as the people of God, as people who who name the name of Christ, we call ourselves Christians, we are to mirror His ministry. We make ourselves poor so that the poor might be made rich. We lower ourselves that others might be lifted up. Listen to what the Apostle John says in 1 John 3, verse 17. It says, If anyone has material possessions... And sees a brother in need, but has no pity on him? How can the love of God be in him? It's not possible, is the implication there. You are near to someone who is crushed with poverty. But you have all the supplies you need and more. For you not to part with the surplus of your goods, to lift up the one in great need. How can there be any love in you at all? How can you call yourself a child of God? So it is the will of God that those who have wealth and power, which is to say most of us, that we seek the uplift of the poor by sacrificing what we have for their sakes. Now, this might require some changes on our part, some lifestyle changes. It might mean that we have to put some more margin in our schedules so that we have time to help somebody who is in great need, time to connect them to resources, time to help them fill out resumes, to take them to job interviews, to to do whatever would be necessary to to get them on a a path to economic well-being. But it also means putting margin in our budgets so that we have a significant amount of money to give toward the uplift of others. Spiritual uplift and then material uplift. Most Americans live beyond their means. That's why credit card debt is so high and and other debts. 
We need to learn how to live well below our means. That can be hard. It means scaling back the standard of living that you've become accustomed to. But we create a significant gap between our income level and our lifestyle level so that we have a surplus there to meet the needs of others. I've long advocated the 10-10-80 principle for personal finances, that we learn to live on 80% of our take-home pay, and then we save 10% for our retirement years, and then we give 10% to the cause of God. As an aside here, I would strongly recommend that 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 10% that you designate for the, the work of God, that that would be donated through institutions and not directly to individuals in need. And the reason for that is because institutions have structures in place designed to provide real lasting help. They also have vetting processes so they can avoid abuse of um, people's generosity. The institution to begin your giving at is the local church. The local church is a place of help and hope to all who seek it. A local church will provide the message of the gospel, which gives spiritual uplift, and it also provides practical help because we recognize that every human being is an embodied soul. Consider Grace Baptist Church. So there is an office at Grace called the Office of Deacon. It's in the Bible. In fact, we have a whole team of deacons, and did you know their whole job is to oversee the physical well-being of the building and grounds and also of the people in our congregation. And our deacons have a special fund in place. It's called the Benevolence Fund. And it's there for emergency financial relief for those who need it. And so as, as the members and friends of our church give to this ministry, that, that um, money is, is managed by the treasurer and it's overseen by the deacons and there are processes in place for helping people. There are vetting processes as well. And there's more than just giving emergency money, though that is done every single year. We'll also have a deacon come alongside someone who needs it and provide resources. Here are other opportunities in the community to, to stabilize economically. And, and when the person is able-bodied, if they're able-bodied, we say, look, here are the places to go for, for job opportunities. And we seek the, the long-term economic well-being of others. This is what happens when you give to an institution rather than just giving to individuals. So seek to be generous and channel that generosity through the institutions that will do the work necessary to secure long-term uplift. There's a third thing that we need to do, and I realize time is running low. We need to use our platforms to advocate for the poor in the halls of power. Listen to Proverbs 29, verse 7. It says, The righteous man knows the rights of the poor. Or the King James Version says, The righteous person considers the cause of the poor. Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9 say, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth. Judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. 
Remember, the poor bear the image of God, just like everyone else. They deserve equal treatment under the law, just like everyone else. And so if there are cases in which a person's poverty can be traced directly to an ongoing injustice, then we use our mouths, which is to say we use our power and our platforms to seek a change in their circumstances so that the poor person will have a chance to rise. Let me give you a quick illustration of this. Decades ago, banks had a practice known as redlining. That meant that that banks would put lines around certain neighborhoods, and they would label those neighborhoods too hazardous to do business in. And they would deny the residents of those neighborhoods home loans, personal loans, business loans, so that it was not possible for people in those neighborhoods to get any economic uplift. Well, it turns out this wasn't just an economic thing, but it was also a racially motivated practice because you could have two neighborhoods in the same city with the same economic circumstances, but one neighborhood is black, one neighborhood is white. The black one is redlined, the white one is not. White people could get the loans to renovate their homes, expand their businesses. The black people could not, even though economically they were the same as their white neighbors. That was called redlining. Now, thankfully, there were many, many voices which rose up against that practice and an injustice was corrected. Of course, I'm not saying today there's no discrimination at all, but practices like redlining have now gone by the wayside because people listen to the cry of the poor They open their hearts to help the poor, and then they open their mouths to be advocates for the poor. And when they found out there is a direct line between the poverty in this neighborhood and this practice of redlining, they addressed it and corrected it. And now this neighborhood had a chance for uplift. See, these are our responsibilities to the poor. Now, as I prepare to conclude, I want you to understand that I have offered what I have offered you this morning from the scriptures is just a very basic framework for thinking through poverty and how to be of help to the poor. Now, if you have a a real burden uh, to, to learn more, first I would suggest that you just start in Genesis 1, go all the way through to the end of the Bible, study every single passage that speaks about the poor and the causes of poverty and the responsibilities of those who have wealth and power to pursue their uplift. Study it all and develop a a comprehensive view of wealth and poverty. Then if you have a particular burden to be used of God to help the poor in your community, I'd recommend these two additional resources. First, an organization called the Chalmers Group. You will find them online, the Chalmers Group. This is a Christian organization which has developed some really effective strategies for assisting um, people in poverty, for for lifting them out of poverty and keeping them out long term, and using the gospel as one of the tools for that uplift. I'd also recommend a book to you. We do have this book in the church library. It's written by Steve Corbett and Brian Finkert. It's entitled, When Helping Hurts. Subtitled, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor. So I would commend that book to you. 
Now to conclude, friends, poverty has many causes, but the solution is for people who have wealth to seek the uplift of those who do not through sacrificial service. Just as Christ has done for all of us in making himself poor so that we could become rich. Now let's bow together. Lord, we do thank you for this time we've had together to think about poverty, its causes and solutions. And Lord, would you use us to to facilitate the uplift of our loved ones, of our friends? Might we be salt and light in our community, doing what we can as you would lead us to pull people out of, of dire straits and onto a a more firm and secure path. And Lord, we know that the ultimate solution is, is found in the gospel. Lord, in embracing the gospel, we learn a new way to live. And then we also learn that our value doesn't come from what we have, but from who we are. And, and it teaches us even to be content in all circumstances. So even when we cannot overcome poverty, that, that in that we can be content Lord, we know that through the gospel, those with wealth do not feel content to keep their wealth to themselves. They must give regularly and generously for the uplift of the poor around them. Lord, we know the gospel is the ultimate answer. So, Lord, remind us of the truths of the gospel and all of its implications for how we live. And, Lord, may this church here be known as a place of help and hope to all who seek it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.